Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time, a Wave Sports and Entertainment original presented by Prize Picks. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Subscribe, like, rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Uh... There's a certain irony to this being Super Bowl week, right? It is the week of the Super Bowl. It's coming. We're going to talk a lot about the Super Bowl. We talked about Super Bowl a bit the week before. We're going to get to it. But, Sean, since there ain't nothing going on with the football last week, they always leave us in this tricky situation on Monday where it ain't really nothing to talk about because of the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to talk about the Pro Bowl and the basketball season is no. not at a good point where there's not enough narratives going on. Hey, by the way, I'm going to just throw this out there right fast. Like, I guess people ain't talking so bad about the Pro Bowl no more because they actually went ahead and made it flag football. But I had always said, man, the easiest way to get people to stop complaining about the Pro Bowl is if y'all just keep watching. I mean, stop watching that shit. Like, that's the biggest problem is that y'all was watching it. You don't have to do that. Like, like, I think the NFL in a lot of ways would love to stop doing the Pro Bowl. Except y'all keep watching it. And they, they, they stuck. They just got to keep all doing it. Got to keep going. Got to keep going. Got to keep going, man. I feel like it's almost like the Pro Bowls is chitlins. Like, don't nobody want them stinking up the house. But there's just one person that just love them every time they hit the table, right? That's y'all. Y'all love them. So the house got to stink. Like, that's the way you look at it. But we were so hard up looking for topics. Man. We, we got to talk about the rain in L.A., Sean. You know, the Grammys out in L.A. We're going to talk a little bit about the Grammys in a second. But you were telling me that uh, it was flooding in L.A. And, Sean, you can tell the people what my question was. Yeah, you asked, is it flooding or is it just raining? Correct. And Correct. Know, I, to- I told Bomani before the show that I got an emergency alert last night that there's going to be flash flood warning. So everyone, the alert was stay inside. And, um, you know, the roads were just wet. Never mind the fact that when I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, I pull up to the wave offices so I can do the show. And Sean was being kind enough. I misunderstood. No, he was being, he was, he was good looking out. I took him up on it this time. He came outside and he was standing in the parking space because they only got like a couple of them. And so he was standing in the parking space so I could pull the rental in. And that was real cool. And it was like unseasonably chilly in LA. I want to say that at that time, it was maybe something like 55 degrees outside. And Sean may as well have been wearing a Canada goose. Sean was out there. Sean, 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 Sean was out there looking like he was in the woo. With that heavy ass jacket. Like he looked like he was about to start freestyling on somebody's stoop in 1993. And I promise you, it was around 60 degrees. Yeah, it was a it was a brisk 60. And it was also cold in the office. But yeah, Bo uh, really flamed me. I left my jacket off the entire time Bo was in the office. And once he left, I put that thing back on. Hold on. I didn't flame you. That jacket was flaming you. That jacket was why you was hot. It wasn't that cold outside. And, and, and understand this. Sean from New Jersey, he's not even one of the natives, right? Who, who knew the world could turn into the place where my Houston ass is looking at Sean like, damn, dog. Like, maybe you need to go inside and do some push-ups. Do something, you know, get some chest hair or something. Like, do what you got to do to get yourself a little bit more gangster with yours. Nah, man, he was just out there. Just, just, just. Wow. At least it didn't have a hood on it. <laughs> it's crazy how I've been in L.A. for seven years and uh, I've I've become so accustomed to this weather that I can't do East Coast winters anymore. I have to wear long johns everywhere I go. Hold up. 
you really be wearing long johns out there? There was a winter probably two years ago. I went to, into the city to see some friends. I, I had to put long johns under my jeans because it was like. Oh, okay. You mean in, 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 oh, when you were up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I okay. don't do it here. I don't okay. do it here. Yeah, when I'm back. Oh, okay. That's what I was about to say. That's what I was about to say. You walk around smelling like sandwiches and don't even realize it. If you walk around wearing long johns down there uh no 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 that's that's not gonna be it but i did see somebody mention that they'd be curious to see how uh everything was going out there in la with the grammys considering they said it was rain and wind and again it was being said as though it was some sort of typhoon right or like one of those sorts of situations or is it a cyclone i don't remember which one of them terms it is but that's kind of the way that people was talking about that and i just always have to check with la but i gotta tell you this though it doesn't matter in the same way, it doesn't matter how much it snows. It matters how the people react to the snow. It is very similar when it comes to the rain. Because I definitely once was out there in L.A. driving in the rain and got into a car accident that did like $4,000 worth of damage to my car. I was on the way to a date, too. I went and picked her up, and I still picked her I couldn't barely see over that hood, but we was going to that movie, damn it. I damn near died to get here. You know what I'm saying? So anyway... What became clear to me about the rain in L.A. is that since it doesn't rain very much in Los Angeles, they don't have a lot of experience as to how you're supposed to handle such things, right? So in most places, when it starts raining, you're like, yo, I should slow down. It is raining. In L.A., the outlook is it is raining. I should drive faster so that I can hurry up and get out of this rain. And it leads to all kinds of things, including me doing $4,000 worth of damage man and let me tell you something that whole that that night was gonna go a whole different direction if that hadn't gone down man i felt real i had i felt really confident about the direction that was going in i don't know about the direction it was going in in life but i felt like it was going to go good that saturday night i was over two for that i mean and that looked that was at a time where man scraping together that, that movie ticket money was not i couldn't be sure of this this is this was young me it's a whole different ball game but anyway it was the Grammys. Sean, did you watch the Grammys? I did, and I will say, I can't remember the last time I watched the Grammys, but this Grammys was particularly good. I tuned into the Grammys late. Uh, I saw some pretty enjoyable things that were going down uh, in the Grammys. I missed the Tracy Chapman, Luke Bryan uh, fast car early. I came back and watched it. I found it to be very entertaining. And... I will uh, get back to that in just a little bit. But I will say this. You have Tracy Chapman and Stevie Wonder on the same bill, and you are having a contest in that whose voice has held up the best, right? Like one thing about the Grammys and all these sorts of tours and everything else is you mess around and go see one of them old timers, depending upon what kind of lifestyle they had, you're not necessarily going to see the same person that you might have gone to see back in the day like bob dylan i think you done seen nine or ten different bob dylan's if you done seen bob dylan five or ten different times right you know what i mean like i don't know what brand he was smoking at the time that then would have the effect on how he sounded but either way there's you know you may not think bob dylan ever could sing but there's some songs he sang back in the day i don't feel like he can even really entertain like he tried to idiot win i think he might kill himself trying to do that i don't really think he got that in him no more stevie wonder it's past the point of like Stevie sounding like he has no degradation in his voice. It's like Stevie voice went to a whole nother place. Tracy Chapman sounded like it was 1988 up there. Like 100%. And shout out to old boy Luke Bryan. He, he, he looked very, very happy to be in the same space as her. 
And he should be. It's just like an honor for Luke Bryan to even have that song and be able to sing it. And the crazy thing is Tracy Chapman had no earpiece in, no monitor, no nothing, just straight vocals. I did not realize that. I do, however, feel like Tracy Chapman is one of these examples of somebody that people talk about how much they love their music. And then you ask them to name a fourth song. And then it just kind of goes out the window. Like the give you fast car. If you were of the time, they can give you talking about a revolution and or baby can I hold you, which actually might be the best one out of all those, right? They can give you those. Then after that, it gets a little bit dicey. Like, you know, there's some people and it happens that when they come out or they drop, it's a moment, but they don't really fall off. It's just that you don't really be paying attention like that. You know what I mean? And I think that she inhabits that space for a lot of people. But I'm going to tell you what struck me about that performance of that song, right? And I honestly, shit, man, Fast Car is now 35, 36 years old. So I can't operate on the assumption that everybody here listening has heard the original version. Um, for my money, nice try, Luke Bryan. And I don't even mean like nice try because that sounds far too patronizing. And I thought he did a, I thought Luke Holmes. Yeah, it was, it was one That's of the Luke's. Yeah, I, I, the, the chat is correcting us that it's Combs. But isn't there a Luke Bryan? I'm not making this up, am I? I know there's a Zach Bryan. There is a Luke Bryan also, I believe. Okay. God, how old do I feel, Sean? All of this is me feeling old. Are we listening to country like that? That we know that there are two Lukes? I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like naming the Luke in country music it's kind of like it used to be in the NBA when it was like, name that Johnson. There are 15 of them. Name the Jalen. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You can't even name the Jalen on the Thunder. You can't even name the Jalen Williams on the Thunder. It's my bad, don't get me wrong. Right? I'm at fault here, but I just wanted to make sure I wasn't losing my... I didn't just pull... I feel If I had just pulled Luke Bryan out of my ass completely, like there wasn't a Luke Bryan, then I would have felt differently about this, right? But I heard it, and the one thing like I noticed really between the two of them is that the production on that Luke Bryan version is just a lot bigger. Like It feels almost more like a live band track. It felt more like a track where the band wanted to get into it. And if you go listen to that Tracy Chapman debut album, um, the production is very 80s, I would say, and probably a little bit. I would say that production-wise, it's more minimal than the Luke Bryan joint. So I don't know if you started with the bigger production, how easily you could adjust going down to hers. But hers is one of those, like, this is one of the greatest songs that's ever been made. And that was that was a hit. Like, it's kind of difficult to explain what the magnitude of that hit was. Like, that woman, who, by the way, had just started growing those dreadlocks, being a video star in 1988, where some of the biggest stars in black music, you gradually watch them get lighter and lighter and their hair gets straighter and straighter. And she was out there just sitting there in a, uh, with a black background, just belting out this sad ass song. And that song is sad. There's, there's, there's not a lot of happiness around it, but it's really vivid and it's really relatable. And she sang, sings it with like this real sincerity to it. And I always thought that one of the things that was interesting about it being covered and the cover being such a big hit and the person singing the cover, looking at the very least so different from the person who did the original while staying pretty true to form on what the original song is, is that to me is a great statement toward the commonality of the struggle of Americans. 
Like what this black woman is singing about in the first person and what this white man can sing about also in the first person. And both of them sound like like it's it's conceivable for the two of them. Right. Like the lives that people are living by and large are a lot more similar than people realize because we can have a whole nother discussion on a whole nother day. Me and my buddy Matt Jones talk about this all the time. But poor white folks ain't really got nobody that's sticking up for them. And they so mess around and get ignored by so many people. Right. But the struggle that he could express like there's a great line. I think it was in a book about Van Morrison that I read, but it was a great line that said that the job of the singer is to bridge the gap between the songwriter and the song. Like you are the person to bring those two things together and that those two people could so capably do that job that way tells you a lot about what the space is between a songwriter and a song in this particular case, right? It's something that a whole lot of people can get behind and a whole lot of people can understand and speaks to what a lot of people have experienced. And there are, to me, in watching that performance on stage, there was such a heartfelt quality to it that you saw like it was snatching people up in the audience also. Now, part of that for people who are older is a measure of nostalgia because it's going back to a song that they've known forever. But I also think part of it was just really particular to the moment. And again, very, very particular to the song. I bring all that up to say, do you ever wonder if there are room full of people of the music industry, right? And the industry is here to sell this stuff as much as anything else, but it's also a room full of creators. And you got to wonder if at some point they appreciated the irony of the fact that this song about some, an experience somewhere between the working class and the poor, right? It's somewhere in between those spaces. This story about that is the one that gripped that room more than any other. And then you look around that room and I'm going to throw this number out there, Sean. $2 billion. Over or under, there was $2 billion worth of clothing and jewelry in that room. I, I would say over just knowing who was in that room that night. Now, look, and, I, and understand this, too. A lot of that jewelry is borrowed, right? But there's probably literally billions of dollars of clothes and jewelry in that room. And you got to stop and ask yourself, has everybody in here not realized that we've kind of missed the plot? You know what I mean? And who boy, you want to talk about me feeling old. Bill Maher did this thing the other night that I kind of agreed with, <laughs> but what, but what he was talking about, I think he was a bit dramatic in some forms on this. And I thought that his like attempts to connect this to the experience of black people was a bit ham fisted and foolhardy. But the point that he was making is that music for the better part of the last 25 years has celebrated materialism in a way that it never has before. And that there are certainly time periods that you could go back to the 1960s jumps up and there's variety in this, certainly. But the the notion in songs of, hey, I ain't got no money, but I still love you. Or it don't matter if you don't got no money, da da da, like all of those things, right? Like the notion that money is no object was a prevalent theme in music and just arts in general at a point in time. And the farther we got from that Reagan revolution, ain't none of that, right? 
the music and the art has became much more about making sure that people understood that you had it like that. And a society that's made it more imperative on more levels to show that you got it like that. Like, I remember I bought a Rolex, I guess now about eight years ago, but I bought a Rolex. And the whole reason I bought the Rolex was I was going to have some rooms I needed to let people know I was in. That was it. I needed them to know that I had some business being in this room. The materialism on all this stuff has gotten so broad and gone so far that it seems to me that just about any artist, no matter what stage of the game they are in, has got to be able to walk into this room looking like a million bucks, even if you ain't got a million bucks. Like somebody posted uh, online, I saw it, a clip of when Diggable Planets won the Grammy um for the rebirth of slick right and they went up there and they gave a classic 90s rap sort of speech that involved a shout out to the nation of islam you know it, it was a different time guys it was a different time but what jumped out to me about it was oh they wearing their own clothes right like it's just a dude in a leather and like a tommy hill figure polo and some jeans but like they were wearing their own clothes. Nobody would dare roll up in the Grammys at this point wearing their own clothes. Everybody looked like a zillion dollars. Everybody did. And I'm going to be honest, it felt like distasteful. And like the distasteful element of it really hit me when I saw Flavor Flav wearing a diamond studded clock. Like, you understand what I'm saying now about people, about us missing the plot? Like, if Flavor Flay is wearing a diamond studded clock, what, what is the plot? What was the plot? What has the plot ever been, right? And look, I'm not throwing shade at these people for having the stuff, right? I'm not throwing shade at the people for having the money. But I am asking, what about that is something that people can feel like you go back and you like watch the 1980s broadcast of the Grammys and you see like Cindy Lauper jumping up on stage, man. And maybe I just ain't really got an eye for that stuff. But Cindy Lauper ain't look like a million bucks. Cindy Lauper was out there looking like Cindy Lauper, right? Crazy color hair and all of that stuff. Like when you see people go up on the stage at the Grammys at this point, I'm asking you this for real. How many of them look like artists? Like, look like people whose mentality and lives or whatever it is, is art. Like, is that what it looks like? That's not what it looks like to me. It just looked like a bunch of people with a bunch of money. And I know damn well that not all of them got money. I know that. In the meantime, I'm looking on stage and the message of the song that I'm hearing and the feeling that's behind it is so far removed from what the people in the audience are selling or what those people are projecting. Like, so completely far from it. And I'm wondering if people don't, like, you gotta be able to see the disconnect. Like, I'm looking at the chat and somebody said they look like people who are in black tie. I feel you, but here's the thing. There was always, like, at the Grammys or any of these events, like, a class of people who show up in the black tie stuff. And then it was the performers who show up looking like performers. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not what it looks or seems or feels like right now. It just, for me, just feels like a big old projection of money. And I don't believe that's what people feel. I don't believe that's what people resonate with. And I don't believe that's what people 
feet. I, I don't think that that is, that's not where people are, right? But I do believe that it is where people think they are supposed to be. I do believe that it is where people feel like they have to be. And that was the thing that Mar was talking about in this is the music as an art form does, I mean, in this space does sort of indoctrinate people into believe, into believing that there is, in fact, a value to who you are based upon all of this stuff, right? And you can go look on Instagram and look at the ways that like parents indulge their children around all of this stuff. Like these prom pictures that you see with kids wearing like Louis Vuitton tuxedos and stuff like this to the prom. You're 17 fucking years old, man. Who's paying for this shit, right? But you do it if you believe that this is what's necessary to make them kids feel like they somebody. If they're surrounded in a world that make it seem like you're not somebody if you don't have that stuff. And we just, we've lost the plot. <laughs> That's just all it comes down to. We have totally 100% lost the plot where I don't even see no real live actual don't give a fuck weirdos at the Grammys, <laughs> right? The recording arts, that's who them people are supposed to be, right? And so whenever I turn to the Grammys and I see all the people and I see how they're dressed, I really, like, I'm at the point in my life where I'm kind of like, nah, man, I'm just, it's just, I don't, I don't like, how this feels and again i'm saying this is somebody who who got the money to play like that like i can't do it all the time i can't do it like all the way out like somebody huge but i'm not saying this is somebody who can't do it i'm saying this is somebody who can do it and that's the reason why i don't understand why you feel like you got to or i don't understand what it is that you like is that the place that everybody wants to get to i guess is my question like not just to do it once to say you did it right like, is that really the place that everybody wants to get to? Because I'm just telling you right now, the people who want to get to those places that badly, they don't really make good music. They never have. They never, ever, ever have. And so when I think myself personally about music that I personally am far less interested in than I've ever been before, right, that I am less likely to go seek out, where I feel like it's harder for anything to cut through than it has ever been for anything to cut through, right? Where all these people that folks think are famous struggle to sell concert tickets because they realize people are willing to follow them on an app, but they don't really care. Look at what brought down the house on that stage. Look at the people that make the stuff now. See what the difference is, and you might find out what the problem is. So, uh, Sean, I may have made a little bit of a mistake today. What is that? So, got up, got on Twitter. I saw last night, Killer Mike got arrested at the Grammys. Which, by the way, did you see was a citizen's arrest? Yeah, it's quite ridiculous, to be honest. Yo, they still do that? I had no idea. I just, I'd always know if, like... You, if you do a citizen's arrest, you probably have to scream it out. So I'm like, that's kind of embarrassing. Someone be like, citizen's arrest, citizen's arrest. Well, I want to know who the citizen was that had their own handcuffs. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's what I couldn't. So was it a citizen's arrest or did a citizen go like do the ultimate I'm going to call the manager sort of situation? You know what I mean? It was ultimately the LAPD that took him out. But I believe it was a citizen who was like, that's the guy. OK, so here's what it seems to be here that. All right. So I did see this. He pushed the security guard down. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. 
If you a security guard and you push, get pushed down and you got to go tell somebody, you're not much of a security guard. What kind of security? Like, like in fact, if, 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 if I was a security guard and I got pushed down by Killer Mike, and that's a big motherfucker, don't get me wrong. But if I was a security guard and I got put down by Killer Mike, I wouldn't want nobody to know. I would be like, no, it's cool. I tripped over my shoelaces. It's all my fault. I had total control of this situation and through no fault of my own, I fell down. Like, no, no, no. So, buddy, so he pushed Buddy down. They went and got him. They say a, a, a citizens could never be me, dog. I'm sorry. I just can't. I have a question for you, Sean. Citizens arrest. That is like the original Karen, right? Yeah, that is, that is such a good point. It is the wide, vague umbrella of being a Karen before it got specified. I want to know this. Has a black person ever affected a citizen's arrest? And this is why I asked this question. Because this is something I do know, and I've done reading where I've talked about these things before, but this is the very, this is true. So there's a book, I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, but there's a book called White Flight by a professor named Kevin Cruz. It is about um, basically uh, once integration started in Atlanta, the white people just said, nah, it's cool, y'all can have it. They treated it like the name Tyrone. Like, yo, it's a couple, I, I met three black Tyrones in the last month. We got it. They just gave up. They quit doing that shit. They, they jumped up, they jumped up uh, 75, they jumped up 85, they went away. But anyway, there's a story in there about some, you know, the trolley cars in Atlanta were segregated and white people were in the front of the trolley car and the black people were in the back, like whichever way it went. But anyway, black man got on the trolley car and he was in the white section and he stayed there and he had just got off work. And he said that the reason that he did that was um, he didn't want to have to walk through those white people and he was dirty and he would have made the white people dirty. So he just stayed where he was. But the trolley car driver came to bring the rucket, you know, to, to, I don't know, kick him out, whatever it was. But anyway, I don't remember who was originally in possession of the tire tool, but the black man whooped that trolley driver's ass with that tire tool. The next day, they deputized every single tri trolley driver and gave him a revolver. I say all that to say this. If there is no police officer on a given scene, if there is a moment of conflict, don't you worry. Some white person will make themselves the police. You can write that down. If there ain't no police around, don't you worry. All a white man got to say is I'm in charge. And that white man will be in charge. He will be Sergeant Friday just like that. It never fails, right? So a citizen's arrest, which again is carrying, that's old school carrying, right? I assure you, ain't no black person. Part of being black is knowing that don't nobody give a damn what you think. Ain't no black person ever thought, hey, hey guys, I'm the police. I'm the police now. Ain't no police. I'm the police. Nah, nah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We ain't never thought we could get away with no shit like that. We ain't doing that. No sir, Bob, right? So, yeah, they hit Killer Mike with the citizen's arrest. And, you know, I know people down on Killer Mike. And by the way, he has he's earned it to a degree. He's he's got very Atlanta moderate politics, which is things that can sound very revolutionary at times, but also involve a lot of shoulder rubbing with a lot of white people and a lot of white money. Again, read that book, White Flight by Kevin Cruz. A lot of that Killer Mike stuff starts making a lot more sense when you realize that Black politics in Atlanta are moderate politics, and they'll always be. Now, I made this point, and I can't be wrong, and I can entertain the possibility of being wrong is fine. 
that man got jammed up for no good reason on the night of like his biggest night of his career. And I made the point because they're ah ha ha. That's what you get. You so pro police. But look what happened. But again, this sound like a citizen's arrest, right? I don't really think that Killer Mike is as pro police as people make him out to be. Now, I had a very good friend of mine who knows these things hit me, but like, no, Mike is definitely pro police. Okay, cool, right? My argument was the dude that says, <laughs> where, my brother, where my brothers and my crippers and my blood is, when y'all mm, go unite and kill the police, motherfuckers, that dude is, I'm not calling that guy pro police. Now, you can say that that is just rhetoric and music and that it's changed. I think that's all fine. There's something there. I am still inclined to believe these things are not quite as binary. And even if they were binary, I'm not I'm not laughing at what happened to that dude because I just thought it was all around not cool. Right. That's just me. But anyway, start getting into that. Not in the greatest mood. And we have acknowledged that tweeting is a bad mood activity at this point in life. And so I guess I kind of kept going with that. And I got to talking about Jay-Z. I had seen Jay-Z's speech when he got his global imp- the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award. And I'm going to ask this question, right? And I say this as somebody who's a big Dr. Dre fan. I just spent $200 for a vital copy of 2001, all right? Like, I mean, I'm there, right? What was Dr. Dre's global impact that was positive? What you got? But you got, I'm just asking, just, just for everybody out here, just tell me what was the global impact? Like he made himself a billion dollars off some headphones. All right, cool. I'm asking you, what is the global impact that Dr. Dre had by making them beats? That's it. That's all I'm asking. That being said, Sean, did you see that they named uh, the, the Basketball Hall of Fame named an award after Cube? I saw that. That was that was something. <laughs> I haven't said anything about it because I don't know what to say, right? Like, wow, I really lived a long time. I lived long enough to see this. But anyway, I don't know what the global impact is that we say Dr. Dre has. But it got us to Jay-Z, and I saw Jay-Z's speech, and I want to try. I need to try to be fair. Like, now that I'm talking about it now and I'm just tweeting in a moment. I said this on Twitter, and it may have seemed snide, but I do think this is the truth. And I say this is somebody who does this. I don't really prepare speeches. All right, I've been doing these things that I do on these microphones for so long, and it, it, like, it don't even feel right to me. I don't really prepare speeches. Jay-Z does not write down raps, right? And so I'm assuming that in a very similar fashion to me, he is inclined to give him a speech to give. He's just going to give that speech off the top of his head. Except a thing happened, which is Jay-Z, like one of the cool to the marrow of his bones dudes, was up there nervous. And he was kind of all over the place to the point where he even copped to being nervous right and he's got his 12 year old up there and he's holding her hand and all of this stuff like he was a little shook up by the moment which i mean i absolutely found to be surprising and so it's kind of all over the place and the things he's talking about and he's talking about how in 89 they boycotted because the rap grammy was not on television but then they watched it on tv and he's like they didn't do a very good job but boy it wasn't a great boycott but then he says in 98 when he boycotted it because they didn't give dmx a nomination which i thought was I found that to be a strange rationale in 1999 or 2000. I didn't I still, it, it didn't really, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but it was like, all right, whatever. Um, he then said that he watched it on TV and I have always seen Jay-Z as a person who wanted to get very, very far from where he started 
because where he started was like a painful sort of place, right? Like there's an affection he clearly has for where he came from, but also a clear desire to get as far away from it as he possibly could. I mean, if you're going to keep it real, he he helped to build that arena down there where he's from. Like, you know, that was a thing. But anyway, we got to the place where Jay-Z was talking about, uh, he made the mention that Beyonce got all these Grammys. I think she may have more Grammys than anybody else, but she doesn't have an album of the year Grammy. And he said he didn't believe that the metrics make any sense. And I think it was a larger point about kind of the segregation of musical genres. And so when Beyonce is competing against the other blacks, of course she can get a bunch of Grammys, but now when you bring it to the bigger field, she doesn't get them. And this also happens on the same night where Taylor Swift wins her fourth album of the year. I have heard people say that they find it to be absurd that Taylor Swift could have four album of the year trophies. I believe that may be true. I have never listened to a Taylor Swift album, so I am not the person to tell you. I can't, I can't answer this. I can tell you this though, and I feel like confident in saying this. Beyonce has put out two, maybe three, I'd say three. She's put out three albums, starting with the self-titled joint, going to Lemonade, and then Renaissance. I feel like she's put out three albums that are of that caliber where you hold them up and you say to yourself, hey, this is something that you think about in the context of album of the year, right? Um, the two times that she submitted her album to the Academy for this, because I don't think she submitted Renaissance. The two times she submitted to the Academy, she did not come up with a win. Guys, it's not that crazy, okay? Purple Rain didn't win album of the year. We got a long list of things that have not won these awards at Grammy, at the Grammys, right? I would think, and this is just something interesting to me about artists, and you can say that artists are different than the rest of us. That's fine, but I work in a field where they give out trophies for this stuff, right? Um, I would think that after you've been doing this for a long time, you would recognize that the way this voting goes is entirely political. Like I remember the Grammys in the year 2001, I believe it was 2001, but it was whatever year that Santana got all those Grammys. That wasn't really so much about Carlos Santana. That was a lot of people kissing up to Clive Davis while he still ran Arista and putting in them votes to make it his night, which it was while simultaneously many of those same people were working to run Clive Davis out of Arista records, right? Those are the machinations that typically happen behind the scenes when you get to this award voting. It's very political in that way. And I feel like once you know how political that voting is in that way, you can only take it but so seriously. Like you appreciate it when you win one, but when you don't, you just kind of got to charge it up to the game because you know what the game is. And so when I see like highly accomplished people really get caught up and worried about winning these awards, I feel bad for them in a lot of ways because I feel like, and, it, and when it comes to the Grammys and black people in particular, where you know this ain't really our room, it feels like to me and comes across to me as a desire for acceptance from people who are never really going to accept you, from people who are never really going to validate you. And so to me, that leads to a discussion basically of either you care or you don't. Right. Like the Chuck D line, who gives a fuck about a goddamn Grammy? I don't think Chuck D ever really cared about whether they won any of them Grammys or not. Right. Do you care about this? Do you or do you not do what they say about you matters or does it not? And there's room for you to be happy with anybody giving you award, an award because you appreciate the appreciation no matter where it comes from. But being like down and out about it or being mad when you don't get it, that's ego. I don't think there's any other way around it. Like you're, that's the belief that there's no way in the world that anybody could possibly believe something different than you the dopest. That's ego. At best, at worst, 
it's a clamoring and a desire to be accepted by people who will never, ever truly accept you. And it feels or it reads to me often as an inability to make peace with that fact and be satisfied with whatever it is that you believe yourself or, or, or satisfied with the love and admiration from the people who already love and admire you. Right? So I'm not one of those people that says don't go to the Grammys. I'm not one of those people that says don't be happy about the fact that you won one, right? You probably dreamed about it when you were a child. You can't turn that part off just because you became an adult and understood what it was. Like if I if I woke up in the middle of the night one time and Santa Claus was actually there, whoo! I mean, I know it don't work that way, but I ain't gonna lie, I'd be ecstatic. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that, that to me is what it is. I get that. But it does hurt me to see that dude that's won everything. He's won this game in just about any way as you could possibly imagine. And him talking about it don't make no sense that she's never gotten this award. This ain't about making sense, man. It's not, it's not that. It's never going to be that. And you, I would think somebody in his position would be better at making peace with that reality. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that jumped out to me. Like, I don't think Bob Marley ever won a Grammy. And it's not just about black people there. I don't think the Who ever won a Grammy. The Rolling Stones never won album of the year. Um, I mean, we can go up and down this list on how this works, man. It's a political crapshoot on how that stuff goes. But I see the people who watch the Grammys every year. And to me, watching the Grammys, I don't know why people, and this is why I feel like this is about acceptance. People don't watch the BET Awards the way they watch the Grammys. And what I mean by that is, People watch the BET Awards for the performances. And if your favorite doesn't win a BET Award, I've never seen like a supreme outcry about who did or did not win at the, at, at, at the BET Awards. You just talk about whether or not you like the performances. I watch the Grammys in the same way. You're going to get some great performances, some stuff that's like once in a lifetime type stuff that you're not going to get. You're not going to get Prince and Beyonce performing together at too many places, right? I got that at the Grammys. To me, that's the reason why you watch the Grammys. But when I watch the people get so mad about whether or not their favorites have won them. And for the circles of people that like whose stuff I would consume or be exposed to, it's mostly black people being upset that the black person did not win over some white person. Like when one black person wins and another one didn't, I don't see that same level of anger, right? It's Taylor Swift winning and Beyonce not. And this implies to me a desire for an acceptance. Like that's, that is what I infer from that is a desire for acceptance or a desire to be put on the same pedestal as these other people are. And the question becomes, why is the affection of your own not enough? Because in the end, for Taylor Swift being at the Grammys, if Taylor Swift wins a Grammy, that is the affection of her own. Right? Taylor Swift ain't turning on the BET Awards and being like, damn, how come Beyonce keep winning over there and they don't even call me to show up? Think about this, man. The country music people done, done invited Beyonce to they shit more than, any, than, than the black people done invited Taylor Swift. She ain't mad about that. She ain't worried about us at all. Why the hell are we worried about them like that? So it'd be cool if you get it. It'd be great if she got it, right? I totally see it. Like, it meant something to me when Outkast won that because I just never thought anything like that would be possible. I remember when Lauryn Hill won all them awards that night and she just got up like, yo, this is hip-hop music. What's really going on? Because we know that room ain't ours. And I think that at some point, I guess people who grew up with rap more natively were like, well, why isn't this room ours? This room should be ours. And maybe it should, but it ain't. And it's not going to be. And you got to ask yourself why you care so much. 
And if it does a single bit of good for you, because from where I'm sitting, it don't do nothing good for you at all. Big game is right around the corner. Prize Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game-changing moment into 100 times your money. With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. You just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. If Patrick Mahomes throws for more than one yard in the big game, you win on Prize Picks. It's really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. And if you stick around for the end of the show, you'll get to hear some picks from our producer, Sean, that can either help you win or make you fail miserably. So make sure you go to prizepicks.com slash Bomani and use code Bomani for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash Bomani. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us have at least one relationship in our lives that we're proud of, one where we're able to work on both ourselves and the relationship to make it what it is today. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. Therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, work, your significant other, or anyone. Therapy helps you find your strengths and also your weaknesses so you can make the best out of any relationship in your life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Bomani today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Bomani. If you were like me and watched the playoff games with your friends who might have gotten a little too rowdy, you can agree that it can be an exhausting experience. So when it's time to start another big week, celebrate Hydration Monday with Liquid IV. Liquid IV can help you feel revived and ready to take on the new week. Liquid IV is super easy to use. Just take a pre-measured packet and pour it into a glass of water, mix it up, and enjoy. You can take it at home before you start your day or take it with you to work or the gym. Plus, with their roster of flavors, you can easily find the right flavor for you and your taste buds. Weekends off are going wild. Have a game plan for Monday with Liquid IV. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code BOMANI at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code BOMANI at liquidiv.com. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now. If you haven't heard. Hey, right fast, Sean. Because I feel like I explained this to a degree. But for whoever the dude was in the chat to say, I'm saying this with a Grammy in the background. Fool, have you ever heard me talk about that Grammy before? I did not win this Emmy. I just got it. I think it's hilarious. And if I didn't get it, I wasn't going to complain. That's my point, dummy. Anyway, your turn. 
All right, Bo, first story for if you haven't heard today is on internet and AI scammers. I'm Katie Natopoulos, a correspondent with Business Insider, and I recently wrote an article about how AI spam is starting to flood the internet. And surprise, surprise, it's not good. So when large language models like ChatGPT were exploding in popularity about a year ago, one fear that many people had was that this was going to lead to an increase in AI-generated spam. Just in the last few weeks, I saw a couple of examples of how this fear was really starting to become a reality. So first, uh, a site called 404 Media, which is a new tech journalism website with original reporting, uh, discovered that they were the victims of what's called SEO theft. Basically, scammers were copying their stories, running it through AI to slightly change it, and slapping it up on some random site often getting ahead of the original story on Google search, which is really important for a new news website to find and reach readers. Another particularly awful thing that's happening is something called obituary pirates. So basically, scammers will track Google searches to notice if there's a spike around a name and the word death or obituary, and they'll use AI to generate a quick and often wrong obituary for that person, sometimes even a YouTube video where they're just sort of talking through it. And this has been happening for a while, but AI has supercharged this kind of spam, which, as you can guess, is particularly ghoulish and often painful for grieving families. So what these have in common, these two examples, is that they're trying to gain Google. Getting to the top of search results for a topic or a keyword can be really valuable. You can run ads against it, and you know you might only get a couple cents for that obituary of a random person, but if you do enough of those and it costs you nothing to do, you can make a couple dollars. So Google has said it's aware of this and is working to stop it, but for now, the scammers are one step ahead, and it's making the internet a little bit worse for the rest of us. You know, whenever I hear this stuff about AI, I think about something that um, my uh, my sister, she used to uh, teach a class, and it would be a it was a class that, well, I guess those details don't really matter, but I just always remember that in that class they were talking about like implication and inference, and. It was one of his students, and he was from somewhere um, in Africa. And she just remembers that the dude looked at another one of his classmates, and we'll just call his classmate John. And he says, John never wears a belt. And from that, I infer that he is lazy. And every time I hear about all these users for AI, boy, sure sound lazy, except they don't sound lazy. It don't sound like people don't want to work. It sounds like people don't want to pay people to do work. That's all it comes down to. Like all this stuff, you don't need AI to write no damn, what you call it, obituary for nobody. You don't need that. That is not allowing us to do something that we couldn't do or something that was really that hard. What it does is stop you from having to pay somebody to do it. That's what it stops you from. Just your friendly reminder at every turn. Nothing is more undervalued in our society in this day and age than people. People. We are going to be complicit in our own destruction because all we're trying to do is find a way to show that you don't really need people that much now, do you? 
All right, Bo, our next story is on caffeine. Panera's Charged Lemonade has been all over the news because its high caffeine content has allegedly led to the deaths of two people and made one person seriously ill. All the controversy around it has called attention to the old question, how much caffeine is too much? The problem is it's virtually impossible to define this in discrete terms. In all the cases against Panera, the argument is that if the company had adequately warned people about the drink's caffeine content, nobody would have been hurt. But labeling with the actual amount of caffeine in a charged lemonade, which is up to 237 milligrams in a large cup, is only useful to a point. People just aren't used to thinking about caffeine in numerical terms. The FDA has a 400 milligrams per day recommended limit, but not everyone knows that or what to do with that number. Similarly, I knew how much caffeine was in the charged lemonade before I tried it, but I didn't really have a good sense of how much I could drink before I started to feel bad. Part of why caffeine limits are hard to define is because everyone reacts to it differently. 237 milligrams might make me feel horrible, but for you, it might be breakfast. Caffeine comes in such a range of sizes and doses, and there isn't a good metric to gauge our intake by. Contrast this with alcohol, which usually comes in standard servings like a glass of wine or a shot of liquor. This helps us keep track of how much we're having. We don't have that metric for caffeine, and we probably never will. This wasn't a problem in the past because caffeinated products came in relatively low doses, like the caffeine in a coffee or a can of Coke. But now we're in the age of energy drinks and other highly caffeinated products, so it's way more possible than before to consume too much. Doing so could lead to caffeinism, a state of toxicity that in some cases can be fatal. For now, without any good way to track our caffeine intake, our best option is to learn our limits with individual products, one sip at a time. Yo, so I've never been big on the caffeine, um, but basically my mother, seemed to clearly make an executive decision when we were kids. Like, why would I get them hopped up on anything if I'm the one that has to monitor these children, right? Caffeine is sugar. She wasn't really here uh, for any of that. But like, Sean, are you a coffee guy? No, I'm shockingly not. And my mom is obsessed with coffee and somehow it didn't extend to me. No, but it's so interesting to me because like caffeine, like I'm not opposed to it, but it's not a part of my life. But it is a like people like I got to have it. When it comes to this caffeine and when they started putting out like the monster drinks and all that stuff with all the caffeine in it, I started wondering, like, is this because society started frowning on cocaine? Like, is that how we got here? It could be, honestly, because let me tell you, this society does not frown upon cocaine like it used to, which makes me wonder what are the energy? Watch this. What are the energy drink people going to do then? Like now that people kind of just shrug cocaine off, it's just like, oh man, it's just a thing that people do. No big deal. Man, they better they gonna be putting some shit in that damn Mountain Dew that'll blow your mind. Uh, and the other thing that's popular right now is a Zin, which is just pure nicotine that people are obsessed with, and uh, it's it's pretty much like almost street legal cocaine. Mm, that seems like a horrific, horrific, horrific idea. Oh, let's go to the next one. All right, next one is on the barcode. Hey there, this is Hannah Rosen. I'm the host of Radio Atlantic, which is the Atlantic Magazine's main podcast. And I'm here to talk to you about a recent episode we did called The Last Days of the Barcode with Atlantic editor Sawhill Desai. The barcode, you know, that rectangle of lines that's on literally every product, although you probably don't think about it unless, you know, you're standing in line and the scanner's not working. But it's so important. Sawhill calls it, and I quote, the plumbing of modern capitalism. And his thesis is that our entire excessive consumer culture is built on the backs of this relatively simple and remarkably stable technology. 
which is about to disappear. You know how you go into a grocery store, supermarket, wherever, and they're like 20 different kinds of mustards, 13 flavors of Gatorade, 85 skin creams, whatever. Well, that did not used to be possible because in the late 60s, you had to scan each item by hand, and that took time. So then in the early 70s, a group of grocery execs got together and they created what's called a 12-digit universal product code. It's like a phone number. So each unique number is attached to a product. They couldn't figure out exactly what shape to make it. So, and this is true, they went to an adult theater to watch Deep Throat until they made their decision and came up with the rectangle. And they didn't know what was coming next, which was an explosion of products, literal explosion that eventually led to the big box stores and fast fashion and Amazon and our idea of infinite everything all the time. Anyway, the barcode has lasted over 50 years, but now we're in an era where nothing that used to last gets to last anymore. So we have a QR code, the thing that you're annoyed with that you have to scan at a restaurant. Now that has a wealth of information, not only what a product is, but where it is, when the product will expire, maybe whether you're allergic to it. So it's way better, but also it's worse. Because while you're scanning it, it is also scanning you. Anyway, there's so many other things coming down the pike. AI multimodal identification, which can scan items just based on their shape, and who knows what else is coming. But I can tell you this for sure, they are only going to last a minute, then there'll be a new product and a new product. And the barcode, which was with us for so long, is probably headed to the Smithsonian. You know, as I was listening to Hana, I had a lot of thoughts about the barcode and how really kind of ingenious that it was come up with in the first place. And it was something I hadn't really thought about and that the QR code was replacing it. You know, like the kinds of things that I normally think when we hear uh, if you haven't heard topics. But there was a sentence that she offered that I admit derailed everything. And if you were watching on the YouTube, you know exactly what that sentence was. And that sentence was they went to see Deep Throat. And... <sighs> It's not the the went to see Deep Throat part that left me a little confused, Sean. It's the they part. They in numbers together as a crew, as a team building exercise, went to see Deep Throat. And I mean... Did they at least set up in different parts of the room? Yeah, if they sat on the in the same row, that that'd be something else. Yeah, like that's that's like were they cool like that? Like were they like like is this one of these like it's an office but it's like a family? You know what I mean? Like like how like like what does it take? Which which, which one of y'all the first one to be like? So y'all trying to y'all trying to you know what I'm saying? Go to the go to the uh go to the go to the the movies. No, 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 no. I ain't trying to go see the graduate. No, no, I'm trying to go see. You know, you know, you know the move. You know the one right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over there, y'all trying to go? Like, did they happen to walk past it and then look up and then everybody looks at each other and then just decide, oh well, that's what we gonna do? Maybe that's all this, the theater is showing. I mean, I like Sean. I'm here to tell you, dog. We're not going there. Like that's just not. 
Not to the movie. The movie? Uh-uh. 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 Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You know, you know what it was? I know what it was. One of them was in there like, hey, man, I mean, we all wearing windbreakers. We might as well. All right. You asked the audience uh, the Super Bowl stories that they have. And you mentioned the Falcons. Obviously, I was on the narcotic around that time. So, you know, these stories are quite triggering for me. But here's the first one about that Super Bowl, though. Hey, yo, it's Malcolm from Atlanta. I got a Super Bowl story for you. Um, obviously, you know, a Falcons fan, uh, freshly 21. My dad took me to a Super Bowl party in Vegas at a Paris hotel, actually. One of the big Super Bowl parties. Got the free drinks, free food, all that fun stuff. Um, so, you know, we rolled up to the party. Um, we're one of the only black people in there. So I think you can imagine, you know, how many Falcons fans versus how many Patriots fans there were. Um, I knew it was going to be a big, a big fight, but hey, you know, we're here. We're here to party. I thought they were going to lose anyway, right? So, you know, game gets started. My dad's like, you know, every score, let's go ahead and drink. Let's go ahead and take a shot every, every score. So, all right, we're doing that, doing that, doing that, doing that. And then, boom, we're fucking hammered. We're up 28 to 3. Nothing can go wrong. By the, by the time Alford took that uh, pick six back, I basically wrote it down as a win in my book. But, you know, whatever. So, everything's going great. And then, you know, Brady starts scoring. So, Brady starts scoring. I got to start drinking. So I'm drinking. I'm still talking my shit to all the people around, taking my laps, oing, laughing, doing whatever I need to do. And then all of a sudden, Elvin caught that damn ball off the ground, and everything just went to hell. I remember sobering up pretty quickly. Um, everybody that I was making fun of decided to make fun of me. And as soon as the game was over, we were leaving, leaving the party. Everyone is literally pointing at me laughing while I am the saddest, drunkest person you have ever seen in your life. Love the show. Keep it going. I'll say this again. The morning of that Super Bowl, some dude walked past me at Big Pink in Miami, didn't even look at me, tried to be slick. Heard what you've been saying about Atlanta, Bomani, and I said to him, I ain't say nothing about Atlanta. I said something about the Falcons, and I said they're going to break your heart, and they're going to break your heart today, too. And for it. Seven years I wanted to know where the fuck you at? Where you at? You know exactly who you are. I know you have had somebody who knows you because you told that story to somebody as soon as you got out of there because you thought you was doing something. I've been trying to find you for years and you know I've been trying to find you for years because at least one of your partners has heard me say this. Where you at? I tried to help you, but instead, you, old passive-aggressive ass, tried to show out, but under your breath, where you at? If he was a real one, he'd call into the voicemail line. But he ain't. I knew he wasn't a real one when he couldn't look me in the eye when he tossed slick. All right, Bo, our next one's on a bad Super Bowl bet. Hey, Bo, big fan, first-time caller, long-time listener. My Super Bowl story, the best perspective I can give, my dad was in a Super Bowl box pool uh, for the Super Bowl about 10 years ago, the one where the Seahawks dog-walked the Denver Broncos and the, co- the corpse of Peyton Manning. And my dad had three for Seattle and seven for Denver. And the Broncos were down 36 nothing in the third quarter, scored a touchdown, and then went for two. The final score ended up being 43 to 8. So had they kicked the extra point, 
on that touchdown down 36 nothing. My dad would have won. And he was pissed, and he didn't think much of it. But, you know, he kind of dusted it off. He didn't lose anything. And then about a month later, he was in the barber shop, and my barber accidentally let it slip that, oh, that was your dad that lost? That was a $14,000 final total. So that was the best story I could give was watching my dad unknowingly lose $14,000 because the Broncos went for two down 36 nothing in the third quarter of a Super Bowl. Thanks, though. Wow. 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 But let me tell you the worst thing about that Miami situation. Before that dude had said that, he was there with his girl, and I ain't even going to lie. I was trying to, you know, do the one-two turn. You know what I'm saying? One, two, you know. Trying to see, you know, just seeing what was up. And I got so caught up in arguing with him, and I missed it. I'll always remember that. Sean, you go one-two turn, or you go like one-two-three turn? I'm a slower one-two-three turn. I try to make it a little more gradual than the kind of immediate one two you know all right now i try to go to one two because here's the thing man if you you know you go fast enough if she catch you that means she was looking at you too it's good it's a good point um here's our final voicemail yo what's going on Marty, man this is rob got a quick super bowl story for you brother so this is from the super bowl in 2013 the ravens and the 49ers in new orleans so, man, um, I got invited to a super bowl party by a co-worker you know i usually don't go to the events with co-workers but I was like, whatever, football party would go wrong, I'll go. Didn't expect to be the only black person there, but hey, it happens, whatever, I'm still for the game. So, you know, man, it's after halftime, the game's getting ready to go again. Jacoby Jones returns the kickoff, lights go out of the stadium. So now everybody's trying to make some small talk or whatever. I'm just chilling in the corner by myself waiting for the game to come back on. And then a random guy just comes over to me and he sits down and he says, yeah, man. Trayvon Martin. So it was crazy, huh? And at this point, I'm just like, all right, uh, that's, that's my cue. I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. There was no reason to come over to the only black person in the party. And the only topic that you want to talk about was Trayvon Martin at the halftime of the Super Bowl. Come on, man. But yeah, I slowly started to make my way out after that. I said my goodbyes and I got out of there. Because once the drinks really started going and it didn't start getting a little rowdy, that was my cue. And I, I wasn't staying around much longer after that. But, yeah, man, thank you for everything. And I enjoy the show, man. Hold up, Sean. Did he say that Buddy asked him that at halftime? Yes. There's a pause. There was when the lights turned out at the Ravens 49ers game. Remember that okay. Super Bowl? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I remember that. But at least it was then and not halftime. Because you were, I don't know if you remember what halftime was that year. Beyonce did halftime that year and it was that time somebody in the chat room can probably put it up and hopefully they will before we shut this down but Beyonce did this thing with her finger that like it was take my money my house and my car and she was in the black and it wasn't nothing about no black panther it wasn't nothing about no revolution it was about whoo for one hit of you. Like, I was just like, yeah, you have it all right here, right here. Like, have you ever been there where it's just like, yo, I mean, I was, we was about to leave the club anyway, but she had a rest. It was one of them situations. Good. Whew. Man. 
Damn. All right. But, ladies and gentlemen, we want to let you guys know the right time is going to be at the Super Bowl this year, but that means we got a bunch of stuff going on in terms of how we're going to schedule or whatever. But we're going to go live on Wednesday with a special guest. We're also going to record a special Fox Sports Friday with Dominique in Vegas. So subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter to be notified when we go live on Wednesday. We don't know the exact time, but don't you worry. It is going to happen. Well, Sean, get people to prize picks. Shout out to Prize Picks for helping us get to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl. Here are my picks. We're going NBA. Oh, go look it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's always supporting us. Uh, let's go. Jonathan Kuminga, 19 points. I'll take more there. He's been on a nice roll. Trey Young, 10 assists. He averages 10.9, so I'll take more there. And Brandon Miller, 30 and a half points, rebounds, and assists. He's on a very good four-game streak, so hopefully this makes some money for you. But otherwise, uh, we'll see you guys in Las Vegas. Yo, Brandon Miller is officially tired of all that losing. Have you noticed that? <laughs> he's he's sick of it. Where whereas everyone else on the team's probably still laughing through 30 oh, you know, 30 blowout games. Yes. No, he is he he is always some dude who's never done all of his losing before in his life, right? And then he gets to the NBA on a bad team and he learns, oh buddy, there's a lot of losing to be done here. And to the good folks in the YouTube chat room, Bo Jones care. If don't nobody else care, I just hit him with the link. But, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Deshaun Yu handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Also, thank you to our If You Haven't Heard contributors. Thanks to Katie Natopoulos of Business Insider. Check out her story on AI spam ruining the internet like it isn't ruined already. Uh, thanks to Yasmin Tayag of The Atlantic. Check out her story, Caffeine's little Dirty Little Secret at TheAtlantic.com. And thanks to Hannah Rosen of The Atlantic. Check out her story on the last days of the barcode at The Atlantic. Remember follow the right time subscribe uh follow us on youtube subscribe like rate us review us give us five stars you only give us four stars i'm inclined to believe you are a hater and we will talk to you guys in a couple of days take it easy (laughs) 